Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. As I sat down next to my friend, I knew this was going to be our last conversation together. We were basically the same person. Uh, He uh, was a drummer. I'm a drummer. He was a drummer turned worship leader from the guitar. I was a drummer turned worship leader from the guitar. Uh, He had a beard, although not quite as impressive as mine. But who does? Same person. In, in fact, we'd been to the same seminary, had the same scholarship at the same seminary. But now as we sat down to talk, he was in the final steps of fleeing from God. He was about to divorce his wife, leave his family, and start a new life on his own. And the whole time we talked to one another, I wondered, is this what's going to happen to me? I'm guessing you're like me in that you've had maybe many conversations like that over the last few years with friends walking away from God or the church. That's the moment in which we live. And and what was made clearest about that was the pandemic. That throughout church history, pandemics have always been a time of massive church growth. Except for this one. This one, massive amounts of people left the church. There was a study done recently uh, that showed this, and one of the most alarming statistics was that pre-pandemic, people between the ages of 18 and 29, 30% of Americans in that age group never attended church. At the end of the pandemic, that number grew to 43% of Americans between 18 18 and 29 never attend church any longer. So in just a couple of years, 13% of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 fled the church, which means now almost half of Americans 18 29 never go to church under any circumstances. And what the study found was across age groups, all of that was true. There was not a single age group where more people were now engaging church. But that's not been how it's typically gone. The pandemics have been a time of a reminder that we're vulnerable physically. Disease, death is put right in front of us. Typically that makes us ask questions like, is there a God? Might I need to seek him? But not this time. So why? What's what's happening in the culture around us? And so this morning we launched our, our Gather Initiative, and I probably just launched it in the most depressing way possible. You're welcome. Uh, But I I don't stand here depressed or concerned at all. I'm someone full of both expectancy and hope because of Isaiah 6 and what happens there. And so we're going to look at that passage and let this text lead us together as we begin this journey. And the the, the text in front of us kind of asks three questions. Who is God? Who am I? And how then should I live in light of who God is and who I am? So first, uh, who, who is God? 
Now, the word uh, God in the English language might be one of the most useless words we have in the English language. That a lot of people use the word G-O-D. Right? Muslims talk about God. Hindus talk about God. Buddhists, Christians, Jewish people talk about God. And we all mean very different things. And sometimes I wonder in the United States, what, what we have in our mind when we think of God is sort of a jumbled, mashed together vision of God that, that's actually not accurate to what the Bible would say about who God is. It's almost more like a caricature than a definition from Scripture. Any of you ever have a caricature, caricature drawn of you? Uh, all four of my kids this summer had caricatures drawn of them. And they were mostly okay, but when I got my daughter uh, Eden's caricature, she's three years old, the picture made her look like a 25-year-old woman. My precious three-year-old daughter is a 25-year-old woman. I'm like, this is wrong. Take this away from me. I don't want to see this. And oftentimes, I think we end up with a vision of God. It's a caricature. It, it, there's elements of truth, but it's, it's not true. And so who is God in light of Isaiah 6? And we get a sense of who God is in Isaiah 6. Isaiah the prophet, he walks into the temple and he says, I saw the Lord seated on, seated on his throne. But then he begins to describe everything but the Lord. He describes that, that the, the train of, of the robe of God was so large, just the hem of the garment filled the temple, which means... The very edge of God's robe filled the entire temple. Uh, and then my favorite part was he's surrounded by seraphim, which the Hebrew uh, translation of that is the fiery ones. They're angels, but they're described as the fiery ones. Just imagine someone who walked around constantly next to or surrounded by people described as the fiery ones. That'd be a pretty intimidated, intimidating being. And that's what Isaiah sees here. A massive vision of God surrounded by fiery ones. And the fiery ones call to one another and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So who is God? God is Holy. What does that mean? Well, all the gods that have been believed in throughout history have been considered holy. The all holy means, in definition, is, is different, distinct, uh, separated off from. So to be holy is to be different. And all gods are different, right? God is supernatural, we're natural. So gods are, are holy. But Isaiah lays out a distinction about this God's holiness, the true God, the only God. His holiness is a little bit different than the typical difference. And so what does it mean that God is holy in this passage? And we learn that through the two human beings named in this passage, Uzziah and Isaiah. So first let's talk about Uzziah. The passage begins by saying this all happened in the year King Uzziah died. And admittedly, that's kind of a weird way to mark time. If you came to me and said, Tim, what year were you born? I would not answer, in the year that Karen Carpenter died. 
There weren't a lot of famous people in the year I died. I, I tried. Karen Carpenter's the best I came up with because my parents listened to the Carpenters a lot when I drove. Does anyone know who Karen Carpenter is here? Okay, I'm, we're good at least for this service. All right. 1983. Somebody even knows the year she, or the, you Googled it really fast. I don't know. So I've just given away the year I was born. But the, the point is, like, that's a weird way to mark time. When did this happen? Oh, so that, when that person died. So why start this passage with Uzziah's death? Well, because in the, the history of God's people, Uzziah's death was a really important moment. That Uzziah was a king over Judah for 52 years. It's a long time for a king to reign. And it was a really successful reign in terms of military conquests and economic material wealth. If you lived in King Uzziah's time, most likely things went well for you. If Uzziah was up for election and he asked the question, are you better off today than when I took power? Everyone would have said yes. He's a good king in that sense. But we don't hear about that here. Right? In the years after Uzziah's success, we don't read that. We read in the year Uzziah died. So what, what's about, what about his death? And his death was an important moment. See, Israel had a rule, or the king, kings of Israel had a rule. They were not allowed to offer incense in the temple. And, and there was a reason for that, because God was actually the, the ruler in the temple, and he ruled over the kings. So the temple was God's house, and that was God's throne, and kings couldn't walk into the temple and say, let me share some of that power with you. I'm going to offer the, the incense today. That was a hard no. But Uzziah, after all his success, decided, you know, I might be the exception to this rule. Things are going pretty well under me. So he rolled into the temple and offered incense up to God, the thing he was not supposed to do, an abuse of his power. And so in, runs the, in run the priests who say, you, you can't do this, Uzziah. And Uzziah's response to them is, how dare you? I'm the king. And God's response to Uzziah was he gave Uzziah leprosy in the moment. His skin breaks out in disease. Everyone freaks out. The priests force him out of the temple into seclusion where Uzziah would live for the rest of his life until he died. Died a king struck down with leprosy, alienated from the people. And so J. Alec Mortier, the theologian, writes this about Uzziah's death. For years the king had lived in alienation and separation under divine displeasure, and, his, and as his death approach, he remains to the human eye uncleansed. Success and security for Uzziah led to his arrogance and disconnection from God. And what Mortier points out and is true in this time in Israel, it wasn't just true of Uzziah, it was true for everyone in Israel. Wealth, success, an easy life had meant disconnection from God. And so another commentator, Barry Webb, writes this about this moment. As is so often the case, increased wealth had brought a diminished view of God so that people felt secure in their sins as long as they performed the appropriate rituals. Increased wealth brought a diminished view of God. To a room of, of people in this culture, that's a sentence that might be worth writing down. The more wealth, 
the less God. The more success, the more you're content in your own sins. And a sense of arrogance and pride begins to set in. So that's, that's Uzziah. He lost a sense of the holiness of God. I can offer the sacrifice. I can waltz right into the temple. It's all good. A life totally disconnected from the presence of God. A life totally unaffected by the presence of God. So that's Uzziah. Beginning to understand a little bit more of God's holiness. Well, what about Isaiah? What happens to Isaiah? Well, he walks into the temple as a prophet. And he says, woe is me for I am lost. The Hebrew translation of that phrase, I am lost, literally is I'm dead. I'm hopeless. So that's one thing that happens to Isaiah. The other is we we read the foundations of the threshold shook. So the way into the temple, it's shaking. And most commentators point out that was God's way of communicating to Isaiah, you are not allowed to enter here. You cannot come into the temple. I'm in the temple, so you can't come into the temple. Isaiah is cut off from the presence of of God. So God is holy. What does that mean? Well, it's not just that God is, is supernatural and you're natural. You're a material being created. He's the creator. It means more than that in Isaiah 6. That God's holiness of the Bible is a moral purity. He is power itself, but unlike the powers of the day, Uzziah or name the power in our day, he does not abuse his power. He's fundamentally incapable of injustice. He's morally pure. That unlike the prophet who says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I've used my speech in wrong ways. Maybe Isaiah is confessing lying or manipulative speech. Well, unlike Us as human beings, when God speaks, he doesn't lie. He doesn't manipulate people. He just tells the truth. He's morally pure. So here's the problem. When you and I, who, when we have power, we use it for ourselves to run over other people. Or sometimes when we speak, we use words to lie or to manipulate other people to do what we want them to do. When we come into the presence of a God who is incapable of those things, we're in trouble. In fact, we're more than in trouble. We're dead. In the year King Uzziah died. And then Isaiah says, I'm dead too. And maybe you hear that and think, I was afraid this is the kind of God that would exist. A God going around smiting sinners for not being uh, good enough. Is that what we have here? Well, hold on. But first, we have a sense now of who God is. God is holy, morally pure, and he's everything that we are not. That's who God is. Okay, so who are we? Who am I? Who are you? Well, Christians have a word for everything I just described in Isaiah 6, and it's one of our least popular words these days. It's the word sin. Our culture hates this doctrine, but I'll be honest, I agree with a lot of their critique. That when we think of sin, often what we think of is, is very religious people who consider themselves the good people, who look out at the world and see all the evil world is doing, the ones ruining the culture, the ones destroying our country, whatever it is, we're the good, they're the bad, they're the sinners, and they need to get saved. 
And that can often become a very abusive way of talking. I'm the good, you're the bad. And many of you, if you've been in religious circles very long, you've experienced that from someone. Someone who will speak with a harshness of condemnation towards you with no grace, no hope. Is that what we have here? No. I actually think sin is the most freeing doctrine that Christians have. We just don't know what it is. And so I want to make the case for sin. I want to bring sin back. And I want to make the case with two things. First, belief in sin frees you to be honest about yourself. Why do we do the things we know we shouldn't do, but keep doing them? Why do we continue to do the things we know are our character flaws to us? They harm other people. They harm ourselves, but we keep doing them. Why is that? Well, a culture without a doctrine of sin says, well, there's really one of two reasons. Either you're ignorant, you just don't have the right information, or two, you're not trying hard enough. You lack the willpower. And both of those are very crushing messages. Either you need, you need education or you need to try harder. And that's why we have the self-help industry. Go into Barnes & Noble. The largest section is self-help. Because the self-help industry assumes you don't have the right information. You're not trying hard enough. And an illustration of this is a few years ago, the FDA thought, you know, we're having a problem with uh, obesity in the United States. If we put calorie information... At Taco Bell, people will order less Taco Bell. Their assumption was you, you roll up to Taco Bell in the drive-thru, you're like, man, the cheesy gordita crunch, that's a lot of calories. I'm not going to order that. I'm going to order, I'm going to drive past and go to Chipotle instead and order a salad. But that's not, so they thought more information, people will change. What they found was more information, people will eat even worse. People ate more calories after the information was given to us than before. Because apparently we saw the calorie information and just gave up. <laughs> My point is, your problem in your life is not that you don't have enough information. And it's not that you're not trying hard enough. It's that you're dead. But how many churches communicate implicitly if you tried harder like me, you'd be like me, and then you could be saved. Then you'd vote the right way. Then you'd say the right things. Then you'd do the right things. And that's a crushing message. And that's not the message of Isaiah 6. The message of Isaiah 6 is, I am ruined. To the point, Isaiah doesn't even ask for healing, because there's no point. I'm ruined in the presence of a holy God. Your problem is that you don't have enough, it's not that you don't have enough information. Because here's the thing, saying I can't change on my own is actually one of the most freeing things you can say. So I love this, a journalist by the name of Ken Fusen, he, he wrote his own obituary in the Des Moines Register, and here's what he wrote. His own, he's writing about this himself, third person. He attended the university's famous school of journalism, which is a clever way of saying, almost graduated, but didn't. In 1996, Ken took the principled stand of leaving the register because the son in Baltimore offered him more money. Three years later, having blown most of that money at Pimlico Racetrack, he returned to the register where he remained until 2008. For most of his life, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him. 
But his church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken last placed a bet on September 5th, 2009. He died clean. He hopes that anyone who needs help will seek it, which is hard, and accept it, which is even harder. Miracles abound. Now I'm betting that moved you the way it moved me when I first read it. It moved me just reading it now. So why is that so moving? Because all he's doing is saying, I was a failure. I didn't graduate. I failed in school. I was greedy, made decisions to get more money. I was a compulsive gambler. Other people had to intervene to save me. And my getting clean was a miracle. Isn't that more freeing than the, the pathetic excuses you and I tend to offer for our sin? I'm not an angry person. You just shouldn't have said that to me. I'm not a greedy person. When I make a little bit more money, then I can begin to practice generosity. I wasn't harsh to you. You just don't like hearing the truth. Isn't that all exhausting? Like to maintain your righteousness. I'm a good person. I'm not really that bad. And the Bible just invites us to to free us from that life of justifying ourselves and to enter into the confession of Isaiah. I'm lost. I'm ruined. I'm a lost cause. There has to be intervention for me to get salvation. That's more freeing. So why can't we confess that? Or why is it hard to confess that? Well, a couple of reasons might be. One, if, if there's no God, that's a really depressing vision of life. I'm hopeless and will die hopeless. <laughs> that's not a great confession. Or two, maybe uh, it's hard for some of us because we fear, well, okay, there, if there's a God and I say I'm, I'm lost and ruined, he'll be done with me. As John Oswald puts or comments on this passage, our modern culture presumes there's no meaning in the universe and that we are thus meaningless. Isaiah knows more horribly that there is a meaning, but he has no part in it. There is meaning, but I am ruined in his presence. Belief in sin frees you to be honest about that and to stop saying, when I try harder, when I get the right information, then I'll change. It frees you from that. You can't. And then secondly, that means belief in sin frees you to open your hands to grace. So how's God going to respond to this dead guy? Well, verse 6, Then one of the fiery ones, the seraphim, flew to me. And just stop there. What's he going to do? A fiery one's flying to you after you've just said, I'm dead. Having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I want to say what I said a second ago. Isaiah doesn't even ask for this. Please forgive me. He doesn't try to make conditions with God. Hey, if, if I do these things, God, will you forgive me? No, it's just I'm, I'm hopeless. And God responds in his mercy. And so what we learn about ourselves is, is who am I? Well, I'm ruined, yes. 
I'm far worse than I ever feared. And yet at the same time, God is far more loving and merciful than I could have ever hoped. And to be a Christian is to believe both of those things at the same time, at all times. Your lostness, your ruinness wasn't like back when you were what, however years old when you got baptized. It persists today. You're saved, you're redeemed, you're a saint, yes, but still working out the sanctification until the day that we die. And when you believe in sin, you live in grace. So, who is God? Well, God's holy, morally pure, such that those of us who, who approach life the way we do can't get into his presence. Who am I? I am, I am ruined, yet redeemed. I am hopeless, yet have found a helper. I'm lost, and yet I am loved at the same time. So then, how do you and I live in light of that? Well, after all this happens, God puts a question to Isaiah. Who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. Before he asks what the job is. Because the job is a difficult one. And, and we don't have time to go into details in verses 9 through 13. But the job God gives to Isaiah is this. Preach for your entire life and no one will ever listen to you. And Isaiah says, well, how long? That sounds bad. And God says, well, imagine a forest. Imagine that forest, 90% of it's burned to the ground. Then imagine the next 10% is burned to the ground, and all you've got left is a stump. When you get down to the stump, then you're finished. It's not an encouraging uh, message, to say the least. So how does Isaiah get the strength to basically preach for the entirety of his life when no one will listen to him? Let me put the question to us. How do we live in a cultural moment when people are fleeing the church? How do we live with, with hope and expectancy when conversations like I had with my friend or people are, are leaving the church is our experience of the world? And to begin to answer that question, we got to start where Isaiah started, which was to gather ourselves to God. Before Isaiah does anything, he has an experience of his own lostness and the grace of God. So before you and I try to do anything for God, we first have to be gathered into the presence of the Holy God where we learn two things. I'm ruined and yet can be redeemed. And we live out those truths into our, our culture. And when we begin to live into the presence of God, two things begin to happen in our lives. First, to be gathered to God means that we ground our life in grace. It's hard to believe that I'm a, both a sinner and saved at the same time, which is why most churches walk away from one of those two doctrines. Some more progressive churches have stopped believing in sin. Live how you want. God wants you to be happy. That's what my friend was living into. Surely God wants me to be happy. If there is a God, I need to do this to be happy. And that's the vision of sin in many churches. And there's a reason why people have left those churches in droves. That, that's not true. But we on the, the Bible-believing end of things, I find at times we have a theoretical belief in sin. We'll say I'm a sinner, but then like actual sin on the ground in our lives is inconceivable. And so we refuse to repent or we look with harshness on other people who are sinners. People who have made mess of their lives and we judge them with the harshness Isaiah judges, or God judges Isaiah. Forgetting we're not like God. We're in the place of Isaiah. That if you're a Christian... How easily can you confess, not just I'm a sinner, but what Isaiah confesses, I'm ruined. I'm a lost cause. 
I do not have it within me to be the kind of person that can walk into the presence of God. How easily can you confess that? And the best way to answer that question is probably to say, well, when you see someone making a mess of their life, a family member, a coworker, a friend, is your primary reaction to them one of judgment or compassion? Because if you've had the Isaiah 6 moment, you come into God's presence and you know your lost cause, your ruins, and then he forgives you, you cannot look with judgment on other sinners. Your hope is they get to experience what you experienced. But if implicitly we believe, well, the reason why I'm a Christian is I do the right things and I believe the right things, then the only way that person gets to where you are is if they become like you. They believe the right things. They do the right things. But that's not what salvation is in Isaiah 6 or in the gospel. Salvation is I'm lost, I am ruined, and yet I have a Redeemer. Amen. When you see someone making a mess of their life, do you have compassion? When you see someone, a politician or someone with a different political view than you, making the case for something in public that, that God would say is wrong, is there just judgment in response from you or is there compassion? There but, but by the grace of God go I. Being grounded in grace means I believe two things at the same time. As John Newton put it, I am a great sinner and God is a great Savior. And to lessen either of those truths means you're not living a life grounded in grace gathered to the Father. As Martin Luther said, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but who are sick, Gives sight to none but the blind, life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to any but sinners, nor wisdom to any but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. So to get grace, you have to confess yourself as a disgraceful person. To get healing, you have to Confess yourself as sick. To be able to see, you have to confess yourself as blind. Is that, can you confess that meaningfully? To be grounded in grace. I was lost, yet now I am found. So that's one. But the second is to be gathered to God is then to become a people of expectant hope. We don't walk out into the world thinking, this thing's falling apart. This is hopeless. Because Isaiah, when he said, I'm hopeless, what happens? Hope. And that's God's business in the world you and I live in. Grace floods into the world and can literally change anyone because it changed me. And if you know the gospel, it changed you. And that surprise should govern our engagement when we walk out these doors. And for the rest of our week, God can literally do anything. He can save literally anyone. Grace is a powerful force to flood into the world. To illustrate, when I was in, in campus ministry, we had a, a guy we served, one of my friends, who, who was an alcoholic and struggled with abuse of alcohol. And he called me up one night really late, um, 2, 3 a.m., and he had abused alcohol again. He was stuck, and it's very complicated, but the only way I could help him was I had to walk in the middle of the night to where he was and then drive him home. It was several miles, Bloomington, Indiana, like had to it was crazy. That's the only way I could help him. And so I, I just, I'm going to help him. So I start walking, and the whole, the whole walk, I'm thinking two things at the same time. One, harsh judgment to this guy. Why can't he get his life together? This is a joke. And two, at the same time, this is me. 
And God has done this for me. Done an inconceivable act to get me into the kingdom. Because you and I, our experience is not Isaiah's experience. We can get a cold touch to our lips. We have something far more than that. The Son of God entered into the world. And when he entered into the world, it wasn't to look at all of us and say, how dare you? Don't you know how to live? Now holiness has entered into the world and you're all dead. You're all going to have Isaiah 6 moments. That's not what happened. Instead, holiness came into the world itself and became sin on a cross. So that you and I, we don't have a coal coming to touch our lips. We have the Son of God, His blood poured out for us, the body given to us to know that we are redeemed. And if God can do that with me, with you, there's nothing he cannot do. And look through the history of the, the church the last 2,000 years. When missionaries got kicked out of China, there was maybe 750,000 Christians in the, the 1900s. Everyone thought into the church. When China reopened several decades later, what they found was there, there was now about 35 million Christians in China. Turns out God didn't need the missionaries. He had some other things he could use. Today, if you were to ask, what does the average Christian look like? Philip Jenkins, a theologian, would say it's not a white European male. It would be a, a brown Latina or brown African woman in Africa because the church is exploding in South Africa or in Africa and South America. And then I hear Christians in our culture say, we're in trouble. We better vote for the right person or it's all going away. Or we better, we better uh, see our, our, our religion uh, put back into power or else we're in trouble. And I'm like, Isaiah 6. We just need to live into grace, live into the gospel, which is I am a lost sinner and God can do anything with lost sinners. And the thing he loves to do most with lost sinners is save them. And so our culture, we are not in trouble as a church at all. And so our invitation at in the beginning of this series is we need to gather back to God, confess our ruin, to ground ourselves in grace, and then walk out into the world with expectant hope. That like Isaiah, to respond to God's healing, here we are, send us. Let me pray. Father, I, I, I know there's people in this room who've actually, they've never confessed, I'm ruined. I'm lost. May that someone who's like never made a profession of faith and, and they're feeling it now and I pray you'd open their heart to confess that. For those of us who are Christians who, who know, we, we know we got some things wrong, but to say I'm ruined, can't say that yet. Free our hearts to see that the distance between who you are and, and who we are, that we might live into grace, that go into a graceless world and preach the hope of Jesus Christ. Do that in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.